This is the MyHeart.net podcast. This show is produced by Dr. Philip Johnson in conjunction with VitalEngine.com. Please welcome your host, Dr. Elaine Bouchard, of cardiology specialist of Birmingham, Alabama, at St. Vincent's Medical Center, part of Ascension. So welcome to our podcast on fitness and fatness and, and how excess fat can affect your heart. And uh, with me today, I have uh, the famous Chip Levy, uh, who's uh, director of the uh, Department of Cardiovascular Disease at, at uh, John Oshner Heart and Vascular Institute at the Clinical School uh, of the University of Queensland, the School of Medicine in New Orleans. And, uh, you know, we've got, uh, we did a wonderful podcast with uh, Chip on cardiac rehab. And when we talk about obesity, uh, you know, I, w- I was thinking about Chip, not only because of his wonderful Southern accent, but because, you know, from New Orleans, but because he's also a world authority, you know, in the field of obesity and cardiovascular disease. So Chip, thank you very much for taking the time being with us today. Thanks for having me again, Alan. So very good. So we'll talk today about the fatness and, and the fitness and how excess fat can affect your heart. Uh, mostly we're going to talk a little bit about coronary artery disease. We'll talk about heart failure. We'll talk about arrhythmia that includes the AFib and also sudden cardiac death. A lot of people don't realize that. We'll talk briefly about how the treatment for obesity uh, can impact you know, on the cardiovascular outcome. And then we'll talk about the patients that have coronary disease that are obese. How does it affect you know, the treatment of their heart for these patients that have to undergo bypass surgery or have to be treated for heart failure? So, uh, Chip, let's get started. You know, how excess fat can cause coronary heart disease. Uh, how does that happen and what can we do about it? Yeah, so, so the, 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 the adiposity or fat uh, has a number of bad effects on the cardiovascular risk factors and particularly the visceral fat, you know, so the, the difference between the visceral fat, which is the fat around the organs, and the, except the cutaneous fat, the fat under the skin. Fat under the skin might uh, affect the way somebody looks, and maybe it affects that wearing the bathing suit out on the beach, but it really doesn't lead to cardiovascular disease. But the fat around the organs are the visceral fat, and that's often a lot of people think of that as the central obesity, uh, the fat around the abdomen. That has a number of bad effects on the risk factors. It worsens insulin sensitivity, so it raises glucoses and leads to metabolic syndrome and diabetes. It adversely affects our plasma lipids by particularly raising the triglycerides, which is one of the fats in the blood, and lowering the cardioprotective HDL uh, cholesterol, which is the good cholesterol. It leads to raising blood pressure. It worsens inflammation. So the fat cells produce some chemicals that then stimulate the liver to produce some inflammatory proteins. One of the ones that we think about most clinically is something called C-reactive protein, um, but it causes inflammation and that's bad on the, on the body. Um, and all of these things, so that it, it, it raises the blood pressure. So it then leads to cardiac enlargement or left ventricular hypertrophy. And so all of these things um, lead to the development of the risk factors 
that then lead to atherosclerosis. The leading risk factors for atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries are sugar, diabetes, um, lipid abnormalities, blood pressure abnormalities, as well as smoking, of course. Uh, but 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 and, and interestingly, the smokers don't have as much obesity. The smoking usually keeps the weight down, but smoking is probably worse than almost every anything for leading to hardening of the arteries. But that but the obesity of the fat has all of these other effects that dramatically increases the, uh, the risk of developing atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries. Well, I guess uh, here's uh, one of our maybe classic example. And a lot of times these patients fall under the radar. I mean, they're like the middle-aged men, you know, we'll, we'll take the best example, a 49-year-old man. He measures about 5'8". His weight is just a little over, you know, he's about 185. His BMI is 28, but what we miss a lot of times, particularly when these patients and they come in with angina, they're on the cath lab table, we miss that waist circumference. And you know what you're talking about, this visceral obesity is waist circumference, you know, was measuring about, you know, 38, you know, that's, you know, 38 inches. I mean, that's, that's yeah. a problem. And even though it didn't seem quite, you know, that big, I mean, a lot of times, it goes under undetected and we don't. Yeah, and you say 38 inches, it could easily be 41 or 42 inches, <laughs> yeah. you know, despite the fact that they only have a BMI of 28. And, and, uh, and, and so that's, that's a, a very bad uh, risk factor is the abdominal obesity. And, and, and really um, the, the, the visceral fat is, is the bad, is the bad uh, thing. And the visceral fat is particularly, is particularly an issue with um, when you have high triglycerides, if you combine the high waste and high triglycerides, you almost always have a lot of visceral adipose tissue. And to really, to really measure visceral adipose tissue, you need certain kinds of scans. And those are not typically done clinically. They can be done in research studies like uh, CT scans and MRIs to measure the fat around the, the viscera and particularly the ectopic fats. Ectopic fats are the fats that occur in lean tissues that don't normally should not have a lot of fat, like the liver, like the, the pancreas, um, you know, like the kidneys, like the heart, like the muscle that shouldn't have a lot of fat. When, when this is the ectopic fat, uh, which is part of the visceral uh, adiposity is the bad player and leads to all of the bad things that occur uh, with obesity. So just to, just sometimes having big hips, you know, and 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 uh, the, the 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 gluteal fat is is often subcutaneous, and and again that may affect you the, the bathing suit look, but it's not what's causing you to get uh, hardening of the arteries. And in fact, sometimes that the sub, high amounts of subcutaneous fat are generally even protective against uh, having heart disease because they serve as a a reservoir uh, for the bad fat. And so instead of putting the bad fat in uh, in the organs and the in the visceral adipose tissue, if it's in just under the skin, that doesn't end up hurting you very much. Certainly, the thing that we use clinically is the BMI, and and the, it's called body mass index, which is just a height and weight measurement. And the height and weight, you know, typically twenty five is above twenty five is overweight, and above thirty is obese. The problem with the BMI is that it doesn't separate fat and muscle. So somebody could be 
a middle linebacker in the NFL and they have a BMI at 32, 33, and they would be considered obese, but they solid muscle. They don't have anybody fat. The fact is though, in our adult society, there are not that many people who are solid muscle. Generally, when you have a BMI that's 33, most people have a lot of fat. Now, now some, some have more subcutaneous fat and some have more visceral fat. Generally, there's a correlation as fat goes up, both subcutaneous and visceral goes up. But sometimes some people have more of the visceral than the subcutaneous and vice versa. And that's why not everyone, not everyone who's overweight uh, or obese develops uh, heart disease. Yeah, exactly. A lot of our patients sometimes will have a, an abdominal ultrasound for one reason or another, and they'll have this report of this non-alcoholic, you know, liver steatosis, you know, that fatty liver, or sometimes they'll have a CT for another reason, and there'll be a report of some uh, incidence of epicardial fat. And this is that ectopic fat that you're talking about, that visceral yeah. fat that really- It's associated with a lot of bad, bad things. It's associated with more inflammation, more cardiometabolic disease, worse effects on the endothelium, which is the, the cells that line the blood vessels. It's good to have healthy endothelial. And, and then some of the, the dipokines that get secreted from the fat cells, they really occur badly with the visceral fat as opposed to the subcutaneous fat. And so really the way that a lot of times we can tell this, I mean, is that you, you can do scans, you know, for the, um, you know, to look for the visceral adipose tissue, but generally a person whose who's weight is high, but they have normal blood pressure, normal glucose, good lipids, they don't have high amounts of inflammation. Generally, that's not the person, and, and even, even taking one more step, if they happen to exercise and be fit and still have excess weight, but if, if everything else is perfect, many of those people don't develop the atherosclerosis. But the reason that the, the, that atherosclerosis forms is not just because you have fat. It's because all the bad things that the fat are doing to the glucose, to the lipids, to the blood pressure, you know, to the inflammation. And it's all of these other components of the that, that the fat is causing or what's leading to the to the atherosclerosis. Well, I think we've got a good understanding that, you know, excess fat can lead to atherosclerosis. How about heart failure, Chip? I mean, how does um, excess weight can bring about heart failure? Yeah, so, so the heart failure is a, is a uh, is a little bit harder to understand because we we we, we heart failure is a big term. It means that the 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 heart's not pumping good good enough to, to get the blood to all the organs. But we really have two different forms of heart failure clinically. One is when you have a very damaged heart, you know, a weakened heart muscle. And, and that could that can be caused by bad badly blocked arteries and having heart damage from 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 heart attacks and heart attacks that that killed off a portion of the heart. But it also can occur from hypertension or just getting a virus that attacks the heart. And, you know, maybe even, you know, sometimes it's happening with 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 the with the covid vaccines or the uh, or having covid that can attack the heart. Well, that's causing heart failure with reduced squeeze. It's, it's, so instead of the heart contracting normally, it's contracting at 50% of normal. And that's called heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Obesity is only a slight uh, risk factor for, for that. And same way, low physical activity is a risk factor for that, but it's only a slight risk factor for that. But 
On the other hand, over half of our heart failure today is what's called heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. If you look at the heart squeezing, it appears to be squeezing normally. What, what's, what the problem is it's not relaxing normally. And fitness and obesity are major risk factors. Physical activity being low, obesity being high is probably one of the leading causes of this form of, of heart failure. Um, and so, so the weight, probably because of multifactorial, raising blood pressure, having effects on increasing the blood volume, leading to left ventricular hypertrophy, the fat around the heart uh, tissue. There are many different reasons why obesity is one of the leading things that causes the, the heart failure with, with preserved ejection fraction. In the same way, one of the rhythm disturbances that we that probably is an epidemic, obesity is an epidemic, diabetes is an epidemic, probably because of obesity. But the other thing that's an epidemic is atrial fibrillation. Atrial fibrillation is so common now in our society. And I live in New Orleans, and one, one, one big problem with, with atrial fibrillation is the alcohol is a big cause of, of atrial fibrillation. But, the, but, but a very, very big cause of atrial fibrillation is obesity. Obesity increases the, uh, the risk of atrial fibrillation dramatically. Um, with each increase in BMI, there's a, a, a substantial increase in the prevalence of atrial fibrillation. So you start combining alcohol and hypertension and, and, and obesity, it's, it's not a surprise why we're getting so much epidemics of diabetes, we're getting epidemics of hypertension, we're getting epidemics of atrial fibrillation and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Pretty amazing. I mean, they talk about almost 20% of the AFib that we see probably just come, you know, straight from obesity. Well, now that we're talking about arrhythmias and the AFib, do we know what is the mechanism? You know, why does obesity, you know, cause this irregular heartbeat of AFib? And also, how can it cause sudden death? I mean, well, so for eight, so the mechanism between atrial fibrillation and and um, and sudden death is is probably not exactly the same. They probably have some overlap. I mean, many people don't necessarily die from atrial fibrillation. They can they they get dysfunction, they get short of breath, they feel palpitations, they get strokes uh, from atrial fibrillation. Probably the, the 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 most worrisome thing that that is that we deal with with atrial fibrillation is is a tremendous increase in the risk of stroke. And the atrial fibrillation probably partly comes from the fat around the heart. It comes from the increased blood volume that's uh, dilating the left atrium and, and, uh, and, and affecting the left atrium, which is the chamber in the heart where atrial fibrillation arises from. Uh, left, it raises blood pressure. That's a big risk factor for atrial fibrillation. It dilates the heart uh, chambers and causes left ventricular hypertrophy, which then leads to pressure in the, on the on the on the atria, all of which can increase atrial fibrillation. The reasons for sudden cardiac death, which is also substantial, one of my mentors is a guy named Franz Meseli um, from Sweden, uh, and you probably met Franz before, I, I'd imagine. But Franz Meseli was one of my mentors when I was a medical student and then a resident here at Ashna. He wrote one of the um, one of the early papers about uh, obesity being a, a, a significant cause of sudden cardiac death. 
And, um, and, and, and so the, the reasons of multifactorial, again, left ventricular hypertrophy is certainly a big, a big factor, probably dilating the chambers and, and sometimes weakening the heart muscle um, is, is a risk factor. Adverse effects on the autonomic nervous system, you know, so decreasing vagal tone, increasing sympathetic tone, which is an increased risk of arrhythmias. We published papers 35 years ago showing that the obese have way more ventricular arrhythmias. Um, then, then you deal with uh, sleep apnea uh, and, and there's many things that, that many reasons that venous thromboembolic disease sometimes presents with sudden cardiac death. So there are many reasons why uh, it's not even all heart, uh, why people can have sudden cardiac death due to, uh, due to obesity. And particularly when you start seeing severe and morbid obesity. You know, one thing right now in our society, which we use the BMI, 75% of three out of four adults in the United States are either overweight or obese. 42% are obese by the BMI, having a BMI over 30. But what I think is really scary, Alan, is that right now in our society, 9% of adults, that's one in 11 adults, have a BMI over 40, which we used to call that morbid obesity. That's not used as much anymore because it sounds too mean to say morbid, but it's it's now called class three or severe obesity. And that's particularly associated with, uh, with, with, with heart failure and, and risk of sudden cardiac death. So heart failure, one of the reasons why people die from heart failure is from sudden cardiac death. You know, and so so heart failure itself is a risk factor for, for sudden cardiac death. Obesity causes more artery diseases we discussed earlier. So it blocks up the, the arteries from atherosclerosis. Heart attack, closing off a, a main heart artery is, is, is a big cause of sudden cardiac death. Fortunately, many of our patients get to the emergency room and we get to open their artery and, and, and save parts of their heart and they can end up having a good prognosis. But a great number do not uh, make it to the to the emergency room. And, and, and a lot of times, one, one of the things that uh, that I used to hear, and I don't know if this is still true today, but but almost half of heart, uh, heart disease presents with sudden cardiac death. So meaning a guy in middle age dropping dead, that the sudden cardiac death was their first, last, and only cardiac symptom. Now, what we never know is, did they have some symptoms before that nobody knew about? But maybe it was their first symptom, keeling over. Very dramatic. And particularly, we predict that by 2030, uh, one, in every, one in every two U.S. adults will be obese. One in every fourth will have severe obesity, or as you said, be a migrant in 40. So you can't retire, Chip. Yeah. Uh, and, and the thing is, it's, Alan, the, 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 what's really scary, I think, is that, you know, when you and I were kids, we didn't see any obesity in the children. Kids were out playing all day long and, 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 you know, they were all summers they were playing, you know, the mothers have to call them in to get, you know, get people into the, uh, to the house at night. Uh, they'd have to threaten their kids to get them in the house. Now the kids are on the laptop, they're watching TV, they're watching videos, they're on their smartphones and getting very little physical activity. And, you know, a lot of people blame obesity on the fast foods. They blame it on Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola and Taco Bell and Burger King and McDonald's. And that's playing a role too. But I really believe the fundamental cause of obesity 
has been the marked decline in fiscal activity that has occurred over the last five decades. And not only does that lack of fiscal activity lead to weight gain, but it also reduces cardiorespiratory fitness. And fitness is one of the biggest predictors of prognosis. So when you combine the two, it's a bad uh, combination. And then so, you know, when if you think about the adults now, many of the adults now were not obese when they were kids. And we're seeing now that the children and adolescents and college students, there's a high amount of overweightness and obesity already. So what's going to happen when they get to be 50 years old if they're already starting off with a lot of adiposity? That's a very good point. I mean, we see, you know, a lot of patients, but the women particularly, when they get into their menopause, they start getting all this weight. These, I mean, they didn't used to have this problem. So, you know, they're looking at the BMI and say, my God, 10, 20 years ago. I mean, I was like a normal person. I exercised and did everything. So if you kind of backtrack to all this young population coming in, you know, with already obesity, uh, it's not going to be a pretty sight, you know, unless something is done. Well, let's talk about things that we can do. So let's say, for example, we talk about the repercussion of the excess fat on the cardiovascular system. Now, what if we treat obesity? Uh, how do we affect, you know, the cardiovascular outcome? Yeah, so, so first of all, we know that obesity is a big risk factor for developing all the, the cardiovascular risk factors. And we know it's a risk factor developing heart disease, coronary disease, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, et cetera. Um, we know that people who don't become obese don't get as much heart disease. You know, so that's pretty well, well known. What isn't as well, and, and also obesity is, is, the, is the driver of diabetes. And so diabetes is a big risk factor for every type of heart disease. It's a big risk factor for getting atherosclerosis and getting heart failure. Uh, probably is a little bit of a risk factor for getting atrial fibrillation. But, but so, so we know that all of this happens. What we don't have as much evidence is, is intervention in obesity. It would make sense that you can stop all of these things if you did a, a vigorous weight loss program, if you went to Jenny Craig, or if you went to, if you got on the medicines now that they have some, get ones that are, that are looking better and better, or if you do bar bariatric surgery. About the only thing that we know right now is that people who don't gain the weight don't develop the, the, the heart disease. And we know that, that the people who, who have diabetes who get treated with bariatric surgery, they actually improve their prognosis and decrease their cardiac events. And there's a little bit of data with a couple of the diabetic medicines, the GLP-1 um, agonists, liraglutide and semaglutide, that at least in diabetes, look like they're reducing cardiac events in the diabetic patients. In all likelihood, that same logic would re reduce heart disease uh, across the board. That has not been clearly shown in, in randomized trials. I mean, we project that that's the case. And there's trials right now with some of the agents, there's trials with bariatric surgery. Um, there is some indirect evidence that, for example, for heart failure, there have been papers that showed that if patients had severe obesity and they had heart failure events, been hospitalized for heart failure, and then they get bariatric surgery, 
the ones who got bariatric surgery have a lot fewer hospitalizations for subsequent heart failure than the ones who didn't get bariatric surgery. The problem is, is that's not randomized data. It's just looking at big, large cohorts of like either elderly or Medicare cohorts. Uh, but I think it makes sense that, uh, that that there is some indirect evidence that you're decreasing heart disease. Uh, but what we really need is the randomized studies. And those are being done right now with some of the higher doses of the diabetes medicines that are showing pretty substantial. Some of them are showing 15, 18% reductions in, in, in body weight. And that's getting close to the 25%, 30% reductions that occur with bariatric surgery, which is you know an, an, a surgical procedure. So we now are getting some medications that can get close to that amount of weight reduction. They look like they're very safe in diabetes, and I'm, I think they're going to be proven to be safe. And so what we need to know, how does that uh, how do these agents then do to, um, to, to lower clinical cardiovascular events? I think we're going to probably have some uh, data starting to come in in the next several years that will better assess this. It's going to probably be a decade before we get all the data in on that. But I'm, yeah. I'm pretty confident that that's going to show benefits. It's a shame that it's gotten to that point, though, because if people would start with physical activity earlier and either prevent prevent the weight gain at the outset, or even if you don't, even if you don't prevent the weight gain, if you take the guy who's 50 years old, who's gone from being 160 pounds when they were in high school to now they're 230 pounds and they've gained 70 pounds over the last 35 years. Um, but if you, t if you got him to, to, even if he didn't lose weight, I think he would be, he would be better off if he actually lost weight, but even if he didn't lo lose weight, but you got him to exercise and get fit where he didn't gain more weight and didn't go from his 220 pounds to 300 pounds over the next, you know, 10 or 15 years. So if you want, you'd prevent the going from a BMI in the low thirties to a BMI of, of, of in the low forties. Oh, that's likely going to happen over the next many years. But then also a person who's fit can have a, a quite good prognosis, even at a higher weight. You know, so the perfect the perfect world would be for all of our patients to remain lean and fit their whole life, and we know that that's not happening. What's ha what's happening is they're gaining weight, and they're losing physical activity and fitness. And so, what I like to to say in in my writings and my my lectures and my even some, even books is that if you're going to do one of the two, it would be better to gain some weight and maintain fitness than vice versa, because I think that fitness is even more important than the weight for long-term prognosis. Very good point. And, and you've always been a proponent of fitness, you know, even over fatness. Uh, and if you can keep your fitness, I mean, you're likely to really kind of prevent a lot of these heart attack and, you know, occurrence of diabetes or hypertension as a complication of your weight. Even so, I'm 63 now, uh, Alan. And so, even when I was doing more races, I still would do an occasional one. But when I was in my 30s and 40s and I was doing lots of races, I'd be and I was running some pretty good times, but I'd be in a race and I'd look, turn to my side, and I'd see a guy that was 40, 50 pounds heavier than me passing me up. And I'm going, you know, now, of course, that person has a lot of talent and he probably would have been even running faster if his weight was 40 pounds lighter. But you can be heavy and be fit. 
you know, and so that if, if you do physical activity or exercise, or you, this certainly is a genetic component of fitness as well, but, but if you do physical activity and exercise, of course, that will keep you from gaining weight in the long run or gaining more weight. But if you can get yourself fit, even at higher weights, now you're not going to have too many people that have BMIs of 45 that are, that are fit, but you can be BMIs in the upper 20s and low 30s and be pretty fit. And you could be fitter than somebody who has a BMI of 22, 23. You well, know? in the, in the Ironman, we call them the Clydesdale, you know, <laughs> and, they're, and they're going, they're flying by you. You know, I mean, I think it's really wonderful. Well, I, I think that's a very good point. Now, let's say, for example, you do have coronary artery disease and uh, or, or heart failure and you're obese. I mean, what is, you know, how does the treatment of cardiovascular disease you know, affect that patient if you have obesity in addition of everything else? How does it affect, for example, if I need a bypass surgery? Yes. Yeah, so, and my so, BMI so, is like 38, you know? Yeah, so, 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 so one, you know, there's a, there's a lot of effects that obesity have. You know, just for example, if you had need a bypass surgery and your weight's very high, you have more chances of getting wound infections. You know, you have more chances of, of having a harder time getting off the ventilator after surgery. Now, once you do get off the ventilator and you and you get into recovery, uh, the, the the data actually looks like that. And this is what's I think confusing to people that that and 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 you and I have talked about this before. That if if thirty years ago I was sitting with two people that just had a heart attack or just got a stent or just had a bypass surgery and they came back to the office and one of them had a BMI of twenty two and one of them had a BMI of thirty two. I would have thought that the, the guy with the 22 BMI would have a much better prognosis. And the data looks like it's just the opposite of that. Now, again, there's a lot of individual variation, but, but the, the thing is, is that the reason for that is probably that the person who has the BMI of 32 that just had a, a cardiac event, they probably wouldn't have gotten heart disease in the first place had they not gained the weight. Whereas the person who has a BMI of 22 who develops the same heart disease. On paper, they look healthier. They have a better glucose. They have less inflammation. They have lower blood pressure. They have lower triglycerides. They have higher HDL, lower blood pressure, but they do worse. And the, the, prop, the reason for that is probably, you know, one of maybe good was because they, they were a heavy smoker. But the other reason is, is they got the disease for a different reason. They didn't get the disease because they gained 70 pounds. They got the disease because of genetic predisposition. And so, so I like to say that, you know, again, we, everybody would be better if they were fit, but for the, for the majority of the patients that you and I see in the office now are not BMIs at 22. They're BMIs in the upper 20s and in the, in the low 30s or even in the 40s now. But if we can get those people who have a little bit of, of weight in high 20s, low to mid 30s, if we could get them fit, if we can get them physically active and fit, their prognosis can be quite good. And it could be better than the thin person who's unfit. If you're fit, it doesn't really matter what you weigh as far as prognosis. You can have a quite good prognosis if you fit, uh, but the unfit, the unfit people, we're actually seeing that in the in the cardiovascular disease patients, if you're unfit, you're really bad off if you if your weight is very low, and that's probably because you don't have muscle, 
you don't have reserve to fight illnesses. And if you're physically weak with low muscle mass, you really can have a bad, bad prognosis. Very good point. Um, what about if you have heart failure and, and you're overweight or obese? I mean, it seems like we have, and particularly with what you mentioned, the HEFPEF, we have some wonderful medication now. And it seems like, you know, you, you have obviously the spironolactone, but also all these SGLT2 inhibitors. I mean, it's like yeah. the Jardians and, and all these drugs should be working very well in, yeah. in our and favor. So, so, so you have, yeah, we have great heart failure medications now. We've had beta blockers for years. Of course, you have to use the uh, diuretics, but we have now the Entresto, uh, which, is, which has been better than the ACE inhibitors and antitestin receptor blockers. Entresto is very good for heart failure. And, and like you mentioned, the SGLT2 inhibitors, which are diabetes medicine, but are actually having great effects on, uh, on heart failure, even if you don't have diabetes. You're getting just as much benefit from these diabetic medicines and in, in increasing your survival or decreasing your hospitalizations uh, for heart failure. And so we do have a lot of uh, uh, things. Now, weight loss in heart failure has been shown to improve symptoms, you know, functional capacity. It's improved the heart contraction ability. There's no data right now showing that it improves survival. I think that the data is all more on softer endpoints, but I I do think that um, that that the studies that are going to come out that showing that that weight loss in these patients and certainly we have some evidence. We don't we don't have a big heart failure trial with bariatric surgery. We have retrospective data that I mentioned earlier, but no one's done a trial of taking obese patients and randomizing them with heart failure to, to bariatric surgery versus no bariatric surgery. Um, but I think that the, the data we have is certainly looking like, looking like that weight loss and heart failure is improving the symptoms, the exercise capacity, the fitness is having beneficial effects on the heart structure and function. And it's re- certainly reducing hospitalizations, which are very important too. I think that I think they would actually improve survival as well. But that we don't, we can't, we we don't have a study that absolutely shows that right now. Well, let's talk about uh, you know arrhythmia and and AFib. I mean, it's such a big topic, and as you mentioned, there's so many patients with AFib now, and there's such a connection between obesity uh, and AFib, and also the effect of treatment. Yeah. So for example, for example, somebody who's very, very obese, it's harder to shock their heart out of atrial fibrillation because that you need more voltage. And a lot of times you can't get good penetration of the electricity to shock the heart back to, 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 to normal. And we certainly know that there have been trials um, in, in, for example, atrial fibrillation, that if you can reduce your weight particularly if you can reduce it by over 5% and even better if you can reduce it by 10%, but even if you get 5% uh, reduction in weight and you can improve your fitness, that you can actually reduce the occurrences of atrial fibrillation. No, no one's, no one's actually shown that you take that patient and you, that you actually improve their survival, uh, but, we, but it has been shown in randomized trials that in reductions in weight and improvements in fitness and particularly if you do both at the same time, you can really reduce your recurrence of atrial fibrillation, which is a pretty nice endpoint too, because one, people don't feel good with atrial fibrillation. And we know that atrial fibrillation is a big risk factor for stroke. So it's particularly important also when they're planning 
some ablation, you know, of the atrial fibrillation. I mean, the results are so much better when the patient lose the weight, you know, as you mentioned, less recurrence and, and less chance also to develop persistent AFib. Yeah. Then, you know, you're really in trouble. You lose that atrial kick, you're really going to be short of breath, particularly now, if you carry that extra weight. I think there's some evidence that would say ablation procedures, that the ablation procedures also don't work as well and they have more complications in the very, very heavy. I don't think, I think ablations probably work fine in the overweight, mildly obese, but in the very, very heavy people, there's some technical challenges, uh, you know, associated with very severe obesity. Uh, yeah. We also, you know, just for things like, you know, using the blood, the, 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 the anticoagulants that we like to use in, 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 you know, for atrial fibrillation, the ones that, you know, things like the Pradoxa, the Eliquis, the Xarelto, um, we really don't have many studies in the very severe obese. We do have studies showing that those medicines work good in the mildly obese, but we don't have really studies with 45, 50, 60 BMIs that we sometimes seeing now uh, with, with atrial fibrillation, you know? And so uh, we, how do you know what dose? And so sometimes people, some people even recommend that maybe we should use the old medicine, warfarin or Coumadin, at least you can measure their response. And we don't know the response, you know, of say, you know, uh, as well, at least with Eliquis and Xarelto and Pradoxa. That's a very good point. Plus the, the problem with sleep apnea, and AFib, you know, so if you want to prevent AFib or have a good ablation success, you may even be able to Absolutely. avoid ablation if, if you kind of work on the weight and, and, and the, the sleep apnea. And the sleep apnea. If you improve your yeah. sleep apnea, you can, you can, uh, you avoid ablation. Actually, you know, reduce your risk of having atrial fibrillation. Yeah. Well, Chip, I want to thank you very much. I mean, the, now we know a little more about you know, how excess fat can really affect your cardiovascular system. We know also a little more about what to do about it. And it seems to be, there's still a lot of research to be done. You're always been in the forefront of this and we really appreciate your input. We probably will have to kind of get reconvene again at some time in the future. To yeah. See how these trials, you know, that okay. you're conducting. Yeah. You know, well, thanks for having me, Alan. It was a pleasure. And, uh, you know, if you ever need me to do another one, I'm happy to do so. To learn more from our team of cardiologists, please visit us at myheart.net. You can also follow us on social media by searching myheart.net on Facebook and Twitter. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss our next episode.